The week of September 15, 2008, was a debacle of enormous proportions. On the Monday in the United States, in New York City, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, which then lined up other lending institutions like Domino's ready to fall, and they fell, one at a time. On Thursday, an electronic run on the banks occurred, which resulted in an unprecedented move by the Department of the Treasury in the United States and the Federal Reserve to stop what had become a full-fledged panic. And by Saturday of that, of that week, the Wall Street Journal took stock of the previous week by saying this, instead of lining up a bank windows, investors are unloading financial assets on their PCs. Credit markets have seized up to the point where even routine daily settlements, settlements have stopped until banks have now actually, uh, until banks are actually able to find securities and cash in hand. Now, I know that this was an American market crash, uh, but it sent shockwaves throughout the world market, including Canada as well. And some have called this the beginning of the Second Great Depression, and the fact is, it is a recession that has continued for seven years, and the ripples have gone all across the globe. And as economists continue to offer their analysis of the causes, what they find is that the core of the matter is a matter of corruption, corporate corruption, driven by personal greed and all under the clever uh, cover of deception, the inability to see things straight. Now, now, now let's be honest, we have been all affected by that toxic mix, corruption, greed, and deception. That's something we face not only in, in the corporate world, but in our own personal world. And so you can appreciate now my curiosity when I open the passage that we have before us this morning, because we open to Luke chapter 16, and in the first few verses, in verses 1 through 13, Jesus tells a parable that reads almost like a story cut from the headlines of the Wall Street Journal or any business page. There we read these words. A rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. He called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people here will welcome me into their homes. Now, as you read this, you realize it is a very troubling story. It obviously begins with a record of shady practices. Now, we're not given any specifics here. We're just given kind of a general statement. He was wasting the possessions. The steward had, in fact, obviously gotten very sloppy. He had gotten used to playing fast and loose with his responsibilities. And obviously there is some level of corruption here that on the surface seems to deepen when he, when he contacts the creditors with what appears to be on the surface a dodgy sort of deal. And what's worse is that at the end it appears that Jesus commends the practice, which is a real surprise, or at least the principle of the shrewdness of the steward. I wasn't surprised when I began to study this parable to put together a sermon to find it labeled in the commentaries the most difficult of all the parables. <laughs> but as I studied it further, I have to tell you that I have found it not to be the most difficult of parables, but in fact the most convicting, the convicting of all the parables. Because the key lies in understanding the common business practices of the day, which will escape our understanding. 
on the surface, it sounds like the master has been cheated by his servant. Not just once, but twice. The first time, when he then caught the servant and demanded an explanation and gave him then time to gather his evidence. And then the second time, when the servant made a golden parachute for himself by reducing his creditor's debts. Defrauded twice, it looks like, doesn't it, in the passage? And if that were true, then the story would probably raise more problems than really solutions. Why should the master praise the dishonest manager? Why would he have anything good to say about someone who has not only wasted his money, but had further cheated him with a golden parachute? And even though the creditors would have appreciated the discount, why would they even think twice about even hiring this manager, knowing what he was already doing to his master? Wouldn't that reveal something about his character? Take the deal from the guy, but don't hire him. That's kind of what you see on the surface. And you can see, see these problems if you go down that road. But on the other hand, if you dig just a little bit deeper, there is a whole other take to this story. So I'm going to ask you to follow me very carefully here. Because something completely different is really going on. What is happening here has to do with the standard business practice of the day, as I said where a steward or a manager received his compensation with what I guess you would call a commission, a certain percentage of the master's profit, which was considered to be the manager's cut on any deal. And in the story, you get the idea of what the standard percentage was by the manager's actions. Notice in the story that we are dealing with commodities, Oil and wheat. It sounds like a financial report here this morning, doesn't it? I'm sorry, forgive me on this. But we're dealing with two commodities here, oil and wheat. And given the standard practices of the day, the manager's commission on oil was 50%, which would explain why, in the story, the deal goes from, well, it depends on how you measure these things. The way it measures, I calculated, was 800 gallons to 400 gallons, the 50%. And the manager's commission in the day for wheat was 20%, which took things from 1,000 bushels down to 800 bushels. So what the manager is doing here is, is pretty clear. He is eliminating his cut, his interest, his commission from the master's business. The rich man here is not going to be cheated He hasn't been cheated. He still receives what he is owed, but in the process, something very powerful can be said of this servant. First is that his heart had been broken upon the discovery of his sloppiness. And he has been given a period, uh, and, and, and keep that, that, that the thought in mind that it is grace period. It's a wonderful word to toss into this. A grace period in order to answer for his actions with the warning that things would have to change. He could not continue a business-as-usual attitude. You see that in verse 2. What had, what had gone wrong? What had gone wrong for this manager? from the time he was hired till the time that he was exposed. I cannot help but think that the manager had begun to think of himself not as a manager anymore, but someone equal to the master. 
so that he was no longer serving the master, but saw himself really as a partner, a co-equal with the master, and was beginning to assume a sort of partnership where the master's goods were, in fact, in his mind, his own goods. And the master's business, in his mind, was actually his business and vice versa. Do you catch that? And the confrontation in verses 1 and 2 became a wake-up call, where then he says to himself, Oh my goodness, I really am nothing without this job. I am not the master. I am nothing. I am not strong enough to dig. I can't even beg. And reality had somehow punctured this illusionary balloon of ego and position and personal agenda that he had been operating on. And I can't help but think that the first part of his motivation in going to the debtors was in fact not something further corruption, but was an act of humility and contrition. I've stepped over the line. And so now, in removing the manager's cut, I am cutting myself out of the picture because it's all about the master and not about me. It's all my master's. It's all his. I am just a servant. And you can imagine how this would have honored the master to know that at heart, he really did have a sold-out servant in this manager. And I imagine that this would have been so impressive to the debtors. They're all familiar with the business practices. To see a manager who was so committed to his master, an employee who was all about the master's business and not about himself, well, let's just say it's hard to find good help quite like that. And if such a guy was available on the market, well, he'd be hired in a second. If he wasn't going to assume more about himself than was there. So do you see what's going on here? And that is what the master then commends in verse 8 as shrewdness. I, I, I kind of like to use a different word than what we have here is shrewdness. I like the NIV, the, but, the, but the word shrewd here leaves a kind of an, a, 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 an aftertaste to it, shrewd. It, it sounds like it isn't quite ethical. It makes me think of other words like sly or clever or deceptive or stealthy or cunning or underhanded. The King James actually translates this word quite well as the word wise. And there were a number of words in the Greek language for wisdom, and this is a very special one. It's the word phronimos, and the one that has very positive connotations. It doesn't mean wisdom in terms of intelligence or mental accomplishment. It means wisdom in terms of practical skill and thoughtful discretion and prudence. Strong's Concordance defines this particular word as discreet actions that imply careful character. Doing the right thing with a whole heart. The master sees this in the, in the manager and commends him for it, for having a whole heart in service. And take that definition back into verse 8. The, the master commended the manager who had, in fact, gotten sloppy and dishonest and then snapped out of it with a wise and a contrite heart, broken. Getting back on track, the manager now was no longer a fraud, a phony, or a hypocrite. His discreet actions implied a careful character where he was doing the right thing with a whole heart. Notice Jesus is writing to his disciples, and he's writing to you and to me. 
And believe me, as it says in verse 8, the world can in fact detect those who are genuine and those who are just faking it. And here is where the conviction lies, because in verse 9, Jesus then draws some conclusions about what it means to be his disciple with, very, with a few very timely perspectives. The first, right in verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, let me be very clear here. He is not telling us to buy friends here. <laughs> This is our master here, talk, and he's talking to us as his stewards, his servants, managers who, over the course of life, accrue different levels of worldly wealth, worldly wealth to ourselves. But the fact is, it all belongs to him to begin with. Let's get that straight. And so that over the course of life, we may have our careers, we may make money, we may gather wealth. Our problem is that we tend to delude ourselves in thinking that what we've accrued is ours, and it is not. God may have blessed me, but, but I'm taking a cut of the action because it's mine, all mine. That's the sloppiness of a dishonest disciple, dishonest servant. And here, Jesus very gently points us in a different direction. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, if you are going to serve me, it will not only be with your time and with your talent, but it is also with your treasure as well. One of the things I've learned over the years as a pastor is that ministry does cost money, and it requires worldly wealth. I can't explain why. I I look at all the aspects of ministry. It even costs to pray. I, I don't get it, but, but it does. It, ministry does take, take cash. And a lot of religions, they view money and worldly goods as something evil, but Jesus here views it as a tool. It's part of the equation that goes into the making of eternal friends. And I look at the ministries uh, uh, that, that churches invest in and realize that faithful, sacrificial giving has, in fact, made eternal friends through programs like ALF or VBS or missions or student surf trips or mission trips to Mexico. It, it's a powerful testimony that may not be recognized here on earth, but as Jesus indicates, it will be accounted for in heaven. The New Testament scholar, Norval Gillenheis, he, he looks at this verse and he, and he asks several convicting questions. Do you use your worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive you? Or will there be numbers who will point accusing fingers at you because you neglected them, proved false by your, in your commitment to Christ because his business was only your hobby? You're more interested in taking your cut. The sloppiness of a disciple. So perspective one, the kingdom of God is not only built through your time and your treasure, or in your talent, but also through your treasure. Perspective number two, Jesus says, the character of a disciple is built upon genuine faithfulness. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The truth about you is revealed more in the little things than in the large, showy pieces. True? 
How you handle the little unseen things, how you conduct yourself in the simplest ways is a demonstration of your true and real character. You can't read this without realizing that God is not oppressed with how good you look on the wide screen of life, but instead has his eyes upon you where in reality you serve him in the shadows even when nobody but him is looking. And he detects sloppiness. And he calls us to himself to be corrected in our following of him. Perspective two, the character of a disciple is built upon genuine faithfulness. Perspective number three, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, money, material goods, however you want to define it. I can't help but think that that this verse takes every single one of us back to verse 1, where our master then looks us straight in the eye, and there will be a time when he demands an account. Don't be fooled by this. It's not as if we're being asked to choose between two agents outside of ourselves, God or money. In reality, it is a choice between God and ourselves. Are, are, are you sold out to him, or have you sold out to yourself? It's really a question that only you can answer and an issue that each one of us need to face every day in order to keep our balance and follow our Lord then down that straight path of true discipleship, is it not? Which requires real careful attention and, and deserves that sort of attention at least weekly on a Sunday morning like today. I came across a, a, an illustration this week that underscores the, our need for this attention. For some reason, I read, this is the research, for some reasons human beings cannot walk in a straight line. There is just something about our inner orientation that causes us to walk in a crooked or warped way. That was a conclusion of a study from Jan Suman, a scientist from Germany, who blindfolded his subjects and then asked them to walk for an hour in a straight line. Uh, this, uh, this, by the way, would have been funny to, you know, to follow them as they walk into walls and, and, and things like that. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's sick, isn't it? That's terrible. Anyway. Anyhow, in this, without exception, he discovered in this study, people simply couldn't do it. Of course, everybody thinks they're walking in a straight line until they remove the blindfolds and look and see such a crooked path behind them. The study reported that this test, uh, tendency has been studied now for at least a century. In tests from the 1920s, you can literally see what happens to people who are blindfolded and, to ta- and, and, and to w- told to walk across a field in a straight line or swim across a lake in a straight line. They can't. You see them going in these strange loop-de-loops in either direction, and apparently there's a profound inability within the human being to walk straight. And according to this research, there's only one way we can walk in a straight line, and that is by focusing on something ahead of us, like a building, a landmark, or a mountain. If we can fix our eyes on something ahead of us, we can make ourselves uh, able to avoid the normal crooked course. And the study concludes, without external cues, there is apparently something in us that makes us turn from the straight path. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
For if it's going to be mammon or yourself, you are going to go off course. And what is that external object upon which we must keep our eyes but our Jesus Christ, who is our Lord? How about you? What's your external cue? The focus upon which your eye is fixed, yourself or the glory of God? You cannot serve two masters. And this issue is an intensely personal one. One master has a distinct identity. He is the Lord. The other hides behind so many masks. But it does have a single name. Mammon, self. Only you can decide who is going to matter the most in the issues of life. As you take your steps through the day with your time and your treasure and your talent, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoy and need worship at least once a week. In the pastoral prayer, I prayed about how just in the span of a week, the world will delude us, distract us, put enough wrinkles in our soul that we must come before the Lord so that they might be ironed, pressed clean, that the voices might be stilled so that we can be able to hear the voice of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and that our eyes might be then refocused upon the one who calls us to follow him. And now is the time for you, as well as for me, to be the stewards who are being called to account and then to have a broken heart to respond and say, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Thank you for the grace and this period of grace to reunite in your endeavor and to receive your forgiveness and to return to the, to the joy of salvation that is ours.